Every year during the great 50 days of Easter, I emphasize the importance of the shape of our public prayer and worship as being the location for how we understand the resurrection faith as it applies to our relational life, our ordinary and commonplace relationships as people of God and also with the wider world. This year I have uh, spoken about a way of interpreting this liturgical shape in terms of what Father Thomas Keating in his book, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience, expresses as three great theological ideas that are present to all of us every time we come to public worship, to the Eucharist, and that we are confronted with these three theological ideas, the light of God, the life of God, and the love of God. The light of God being the processes of illumination that God working in us can produce, and the insight that we gain by virtue of that creates some species of practical wisdom about the cumulative experience we have uh, learned over time in coping and uh, dealing with the problems, with the, or what we should say the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us. And so the practical wisdom that we have personally and corporately becomes now corporately part of the great tradition with a capital T. The life of God is the empowerment that we receive through our baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us and that we participate in that divine life always, even if in the circumstances of our life it seems very remote and far away often. That we always have that spark to tap, that is God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, again, what Father Thomas Keating would call our true self. And today, particularly from the reading in 1 John from the Epistle, we are confronted with the love of God as being the most powerful force in the cosmos for transformation, which is what Father Keating would say is the presence of the love of God in the liturgy and our knowledge that we are unconditionally loved by God as the default position. So we know that God loves us no matter what, and by extension, we are called to express and to reflect and to be transparencies of that love to the world. So in my sermon this morning, I want to say some things about love technically, to read to you some definitions, and we'll just wade through them together. But it just occurred to me, I didn't write anything about this this week, but when I read the Gospel to you just a few minutes ago, I want to say something about how it reinforces, I think, what I'm going to say, not about love per se, but about the location for the people of God uh, to receive the spiritual strength and stamina that they need in their common life together and personally. This gospel, when John took it and put it in his gospel as he put the gospel together is a very ancient 
saying of Jesus. And it was originally a saying about God's judgment. And it would fit the sort of, this is the fancy term, eschatological character of the preaching of Jesus, which means the kingdom's going to come any minute. You better pull your socks up and get your life in order. And uh, there's going to be some separating going on here as we move forward. But John, as he is in a community that lives now uh, the latest of the Gospels in the New Testament, here we are uh, uh, two generations out from the Christ event. How do we make sense of this idea of the vine and the vine dresser uh, in our common life together as we uh, understand the challenges and opportunities in front of us as the Johannine community, the community out of which John's Gospel comes? And this, for John, becomes a commercial message for the importance of the sacramental life and how the vine is the source of, of being fed with the spiritual food and drink of the Eucharist and the location for how we understand God's coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us as involving some species of pruning, some ability to understand as we grow in grace uh, what God has in mind for us and how we should live as we move forward. That there is always the idea that we are in process and that we have been invited by the Savior to go with Him on the way. And that involves to some degree the idea of change and the idea of perhaps looking at things in a new way. So we'll just keep that in mind as part of the way the the uh, light of God, the life of God, and the love of God are made manifest to us, and our sense of connection with one another like the vine. The vine receives strength by connection. Love in our culture is uh, highly sentimentalized. I expect it always has been, really. But nowadays, love is uh, the way a lot of people think about this. And uh, it can be sentimentalized to a degree. And when you see on the television how it is characterized in many of these programs, it's no wonder that we're in some hot water in the wider culture. You, you may think I've lost my mind, but I was surfing the TV um, a couple of weeks ago. I ran into a show called Real Housewives of New York City. The nadir of Western culture as we have known it. And how they think about love and relationship and what this all means will make your hair stand on end. It's good for preachers to see this stuff from time to time. <laughs> I realize that I most of the time am in cotton wool, you know, sort of not, uh, not connected up with the way it really is out there. So we need to do something about the caricatures that are in front of us. So let me read to you some de a, de a definition of, of love from the Dictionary of Catholic Spirituality, published by the, the, the St. John's University at Collegeville. Broadly stated, love is an affective disposition. Affective ha means it, having to do with the emotions. Toward another person 
arising from qualities perceived as attractive, from instincts of natural relationship, or from sympathy, and resulting in concern for the welfare of the object, and usually also delight in her, his, its presence, and desire for the beloved's acceptance and approval. From a religious perspective, love is considered to be preeminently God's benevolent love. God's love encompasses human love for God, human love for the neighbor, human love for creation, and self-love. You know, this is what it says in the epistle, isn't it? That we, are, we love because God loved us, and we participate in the love of God. The Greeks had more than one word for love. We have one, but the Greeks had a number of them. Three that stand out are philia, brotherly love, but it means the love of obligation, you know, for your family members and your friends and for those kinds of things. We have eros, which is not just erotic love, but it's the love that's, that urgently seeks union, that seeks somehow relationship. There is a quality of, of urgency in this kind of understanding. Plato said that was the least satisfactory form of love. And then the New Testament, most of the time, speaks about agape, the love that is loved without regard for the loveliness of the object towards which the love is directed. Selfless love. So you and I, when we think about the variety of ways we're, we're called upon to love people, may understand that the uh, issue becomes what is the amount of self that we need to give up in order to have a loving relationship? And how do we give up the right amount of self and preserve our own sense of self? And how does that bring some sense of health and wholeness to our relationship? You know, all of us are made of protoplasm. And if protoplasm had its way, we'd all clump together in one big lump. So the question is, how do we identify what our self is and what it isn't? What isn't self? And how do we understand the love that is loved without regard to the, for the loveliness of the object towards which that is directed? All of you have been capable of expressing that kind of love in your life. And maybe some of you, if you can recall it, have also experienced that exhilaration of the kind of selflessness that you have experienced where you've forgotten who you were and your own kind of uh, self-centeredness and you have been completely engaged in the kind of self-giving that in the New Testament uh, is uh, billed as the highest form of love. Now we have a difficulty in this culture because uh, most of us equate in this day and age, we were talking about this in the sermon discussion group at nine o'clock, my grandparents were married for 59 years, and they had a very happy marriage, by and large. And when I was a little boy, my grandmother would talk to me and my brother about her, about her marriage to my grandfather, to some extent. But one of the things I noticed as I got older and thought about it was it never really was high on her priority list uh, that she was happily married.
as a goal. Now, I'm not preaching against being happily married. It's just that I think nowadays self-fulfillment gets mixed, mixed up with how that's all understood. Because there were some other issues about uh, the relationship that had some importance to a certain kind of self-giving, a certain kind of uh, feeling that there was mutuality and mo of moving in the same direction and so on. I did admit in the conversation that we had about this that the difference is generationally that back then in my grandparents' marriage there was one vote. Right? A couple of generations ago there was one vote, his vote. Now in most marriages we have two votes. Remember what Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government there is, except all the others. So that means that we have a new situation in terms of how we understand mutuality and self-giving. And maybe an over-focus on self-fulfillment is not going to get us there, because it is a mixture, isn't it, of all of the aspects of love that the Greeks talk about. Eros, agape, philia, all of those things come into play in our marriage relationship and how it can fire on all eights when they seem to be in sync. John McQuarrie, the, uh, he's recently departed uh, in his Principles of Christian Theology, says that love is letting be. Love usually gets defined in terms of union or the drive toward union, but such a definition is too egocentric. Love does indeed lead to community, but to aim primarily at uniting the other person to oneself or oneself to them is not the secret of love and may even be destructive of genuine community. I have told you about the New Yorker cartoon where this older married couple are sitting in a restaurant and one of them looks over the table at the other one and says, you know, I can't remember whether it's you or me that doesn't like asparagus. <laughs> so maybe that's the kind of merging of selves that we could do without. Love does indeed lead to community, but to aim primarily at uniting the other person to oneself or oneself to them is not the secret of love and may even be destructive of genuine community. Love is letting be, of course, in the sense of standing off from someone, not in the sense of standing off from someone or something, but in the positive and active sense of enabling to be. When we talk of letting be, we are to understand both parts of this hyphenated expression in a strong sense. Letting as empowering and be as enjoying the maximum range of being that is open to the particular person concerned. So part of mature relationship may have something to do with letting be.
and what that might mean. How do we maintain the right kind of distance and how do we maintain the kind of connection necessary to foster true intimacy? I talk a lot about Edwin Friedman. He used to say that focusing on pathology produces dependence. Focusing on strength produces intimacy. And so often when we get tangled up with people and we want to help them, we're focusing on the pathology, aren't we? Instead of the strength. Now he also had an axe to grind with a, a term that is widely used in our culture and has been for a long time. Uh, and I'm going out on a limb here, but here goes. And that is the word empathy. Most people have an idea that empathy is the thing that we all ought to aspire to in some form or another. And you know, it's not a very old word. It comes from, the, from, from a German word, Einführung, which means to feel in. And it had its origins in German art criticism in the late 19th and early 20th century. So a critic who would be writing about a painting would use that term to say how he or she entered into and felt into the artist's reasoning behind painting this and, and so on. And we, of course, have taken it now to be a template, or some have, for the way in which we need to, uh, you know, sometimes feel other people's feelings and think other people's thoughts or believe that uh, always it's important to understand somebody. You know, and sometimes it isn't always necessary to do it that way. Two words which have a long tradition in, in, in both the West and the East are sympathy and compassion. I heard the Dalai Lama on TV yesterday talk about compassion and how that becomes central to how we engage in relationship. And it is the kind of relationship that involves uh, the not stepping away from feeling, but understanding, I think, the proper kind of, of distance. You know, in the, um, uh, in, in, in the King James Bible, when uh, Paul is speaking about love, uh, he speaks, he used, it's translated in the King James Version as charity, which is not... Uh, a good word these days because charity has all kinds of meanings that uh, w didn't mean what it meant when it was used in the King James Version. But it's the kind of taking other people seriously in sympathetic and compassionate ways as you seek to move towards healing and wholeness. So it's important for us to know perhaps that uh, Part of loving one another has to do with how much self do we give up and how much self do we keep. And sometimes we've got to give up more self than other times. And how do we get that rubber band aspect of relationship and connection down as we live our lives? Nobody uh, can be healed if they cut off from other people. So we are all in relationship one to another. But it's important for us to learn how to be non-anxious in relationship. 
and how to maintain non-anxiousness, particularly when other people are reactive and anxious themselves. And you and I live in a culture that is chronically anxious. This swine flu reaction is an absolute testimony to the chronic anxiety of this culture. He did not just say that we shouldn't have cared about it nor make announcements about it. Don't mistake me at all. But my heavens, it was like, has this been a slow news day? <laughs> right? Sometimes that sense of anxiety can uh, be too much. And you know, when we are anxious, we want to clump together, don't we? And we want to kind of huddle together, and we want to kind of just, you know, instead of say, how do we move in a direction? And how do each one of us find the ways and the means in our relationship to cultivate some sense of leadership in big and small ways to move things towards health? Now, the first epistle to John in the reading today helps us in this matter because it talks about abiding, that we abide in God's love, God's love abides in us, and that there are certain things that occur when we understand that, that presence. And one of them is my favorite line in this whole epistle, perfect love casts out all fear. Because when you're fearful or anxious, you can't trust that perhaps your own instincts are the right ones, and you are fearful about separation and loss, and you are fearful about the reactivity of other people in such a way that you might believe to be harmful. Or if you're conflict-averse, you don't want to get into something. My grandmother, dear, there was tension. You don't want that. So perfect love casts out all fear. And when we know that, we also know that we are unconditionally loved by God. That's the default position. You know, a lot of Christian groups don't want to spend much time with you on God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. In fact, saying that too much for some makes them think that, you know, we're not going to keep you here because we kind of need to keep you a little bit off balance. You know, like you might bet into big trouble. If you don't realize that you need to do this, your post-mortem bliss may be in jeopardy. And we would prefer to err on the side of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So this week, see if you have the opportunity in relationship to let be. See if you have the opportunity to remain non-anxious in the face of the anxiousness or the reactivity of others. Remember that God unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you. Remember that one of the things that the 850 Days of Easter teaches us that each of you has a role to play in big and small ways in God's plan for the cosmos. And as you begin to discern what that role is, always know that perfect love casts out all fear. Amen. <laughs>